Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 22 of They Walk Among Us a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Listener caution is advised, as this episode contains adult themes and descriptions that some listeners may find distressing. Between 1975 and 1980, the Yorkshire Ripper used the north of England as a hunting ground. He spread fear, not just in Yorkshire, but across the entire country. The Yorkshire Ripper Peter Sutcliffe killed 13 women and attacked eight others. But before his capture, police were duped by a recording and three letters sent by a hoaxer. The voice on the tape claimed that he was the serial killer. This false evidence would derail the investigation and divert attention away from the real culprit. Police would later discover the recordings were made by John Humble. For over a quarter of a century, the answer to the question who is Wearside Jack would remain unanswered, and John would lead detectives on a wild goose chase that may have cost three women their lives. John Samuel Humble was born on January 8, 1956. His mother Violet raised him after his father Samuel passed away when John was only eight years old. He had a brother called Henry and a sister called Jean. They lived on the Hilton Lane estate in Sunderland. John attended both Hilton Road School and Havelock Secondary, receiving above average grades. After John had left school in Castletown, he found it difficult to forge a career path trying his hand at cleaning windows, working as a security guard and a labourer on a building site. 
In his spare time, he would be found in the Round Robin pub playing darts or watching football. He had an interest in crime writing and reading stories of Jack the Ripper, a notorious serial killer who stalked the streets of Whitechapel in the 1880s. John Humble also had a criminal record. In 1973, he received a conviction for burglary and theft, and two years on had another run-in with the law for assaulting an off-duty police constable in Sunderland's Locarno Ballroom. He had viciously kicked the man in the head and received three months in a young offender's institute. During the time Peter Sutcliffe was terrorising the ridings of Yorkshire, John Humble began sending letters to Assistant Chief Constable George Oldfield, who was heading the Ripper investigation in March 1978. The letters contained detailed information relating to the attacks that hadn't been published, and police believed that they were written by the Yorkshire Ripper. It wasn't until many years later it was identified that information police believed to have been withheld had actually been disclosed to the press. The first letter, written by John and addressed to Assistant Chief Constable George Oldfield, was posted on March 8, 1978. Describing himself as the Ripper and stating his purpose was to rid the streets of sex workers, the letter implied that he had killed eight women, not seven as initially thought. Part of the letter read, Up to eight now, you say seven, but remember Preston 75. This was a reference to the murder of Joan Harrison. Joan Harrison was a 26-year-old sex worker. She was last seen walking towards Preston Town Centre just before 10.30pm. Her body was found in a derelict garage on November 23, 1975. Joan had been sexually assaulted and mercilessly beaten. She died as a result. Items of her jewellery had been taken, including two wedding rings, and she had a deep bite mark on her left breast. Peter Sutcliffe denied that Joan was one of his victims and was never charged with her murder. It wasn't until decades later in 2011 that the truth would finally be revealed. Advances in forensic techniques improved the way DNA could be analysed and this helped the Lancaster Police Force identify an individual they believed to be the culprit. A man named Christopher Smith from Leeds, West Yorkshire may have been involved, after DNA recovered from the crime scene matched his profile. Christopher Smith was only known by that name for the last two decades of his life. Born Alexander Smith, he was raised in Derry, Northern Ireland, and during his teenage years he moved to Wales before committing a number of petty thefts as he travelled between Bolton, Salford, Stoke-on-Trent and Leeds. He had over a dozen aliases and was in prison during 1981 for just under three years after being charged with the attempted rape of a 17-year-old in Manchester. Alexander Smith had been married three times and had a history of domestic abuse. He was given a suspended sentence for stabbing his first wife and he threw his second wife out of a window when she was seven months pregnant. Christopher had a DNA swab taken in 2008 after being arrested for drink driving, but died shortly after as he was suffering from lung cancer. On his deathbed, he scribbled a two-page note which was found at his home. The note read, To whoever it concerns, I would like to put the record straight. I can't go on with the guilt. I have lived with it for over 20 years. I am truly sorry for all the pain I have caused to anyone, 
please believe me when I say I'm sorry. I love my grandkids and my daughter. I cannot go back to prison anymore. Please God help my family who I worship. I've been out of trouble for over 20 years so please God help me. I am so sorry. God forgive me. I love you all forever. The DNA result came as a shock to his family as over the last 20 years he appeared to be a good father, grandfather and a devout family man. The Crown Prosecution stated they had enough evidence to charge him if he had still been alive. During February 2011, Detective Chief Superintendent Graham Gardner, the head of crime for the Lancashire Constabulary, stated, This has been a long-running and complex homicide inquiry for the Constabulary. Joan lost her life in a most brutal way, and despite the enormous efforts of all those originally involved, no charges were ever brought. Advances in DNA interpretation over the years has finally allowed us to identify Smith as the man at the scene of Joan's murder. That fact, coupled with other evidence we have gathered over the recent months, has been sufficient to convince the Crown Prosecution Service that Smith would have been charged with her murder had he been alive today. It is with some regret that Smith is not still alive to stand trial for his crime. One can only try to imagine the sadness endured by Joan's family over the years, and I truly hope this development will finally bring some closure surrounding their tragic loss. A week after Wearside Jack sent his first letter in March 1978, a second was sent to the chief editor at the Daily Mirror. The second letter, much like the first, was initially discounted by police, believing them to be hoaxes. However, upon receiving the third letter a year later, again addressed to George Oldfield and posted from Sunderland, this caught the attention of the police force who started to treat the letters more seriously. The letters were similar in style to those written by Jack the Ripper from the 1880s. It was the spring of 1979, and during his early 20s, John Humble purchased a cassette tape from Woolworths, and using a tape machine that he had borrowed from his brother, John recorded a message claiming to be the Yorkshire Ripper. It was a cassette tape addressed to George Oldfield that would change the entire focus of the investigation. The hoax was incredibly costly for the police force. It diverted their resources from finding the actual killer. Received on June 17, 1979, the recording taunted the assistant chief constable. I'm Jack. I see you are still having no look catching me. I have the greatest respect for you, George. But Lord, you are no near catching me now. And four years ago when I started, I reckon your boys are letting you down, George. They can't be much good, can they? The only time they came near catching me was a few months back in Chapeltown when I was disturbed. I warned you in March that I'd strike again. Sorry it wasn't Bradford. I'm not quite sure when I'll strike again. But it will be definitely sometime this year. I'm not sure where. Maybe Manchester. I like it there. There's plenty of them knocking about. They never learn, do they, George? I bet you've warned them, but they never listen. Well, it's been nice chatting to you, George. Yours, Chuck the River. 
The recording ended with Thank You For Being A Friend by Andrew Gold. The police focused their efforts on finding out who the man on the recording was, believing him to be the Ripper. The tape had been cleaned of fingerprints and any identifying marks had been filed away. Custard powder was found on the cassette casing, suggesting it was probably recorded in a kitchen. The police were aware of Peter Sutcliffe. His name was mentioned nine times in a police document summarising the Ripper suspects. As his accent and writing style didn't match the letters and the tape, he was discounted as a viable suspect. Based on the tape, language experts pinpointed Castletown, a small village in Sunderland, as the place the Ripper had grown up, so resources were diverted there, which was less than a mile away from John's home on the opposite side of the River Weir. Tracy Brown, who had survived an attack by the Ripper, heard the recording and insisted the voice on the tape didn't belong to her attacker. She had spoken to Peter Sutcliffe for half an hour and knew the difference between a Yorkshire and a Geordie accent. The police didn't initially believe that Tracy had been attacked by the Ripper, so the identikit picture that she provided was ignored. In 1979, John Humble called the police anonymously declaring that the tape was a fake. Guilt was starting to eat him up, as the Ripper had killed another victim while the police diverted their attention away from the real culprit. I can't hear you, it's a bad line. PC Keith Mount, who worked in the incident room, took the call and was convinced it was Wearside Jack but after feeding this information back to his supervisors, it was sent to the Home Office Laboratory, but they didn't believe the voice on the calls matched the tape. Two months later, as John was struggling to come to terms with the impact of his actions, he attempted to take his own life. He was saved by two police officers after he jumped into the River Weir with his pockets full of stones. He spent several months in hospital after sustaining multiple injuries, and also received psychiatric treatment to aid in his rehabilitation. He moved back to his childhood home where his brother and sister lived. As weeks turned to months and months turned to years, in 1990 John's life took a turn for the better after he met and married 40-year-old Anne Mason. Despite her family being barred from the wedding, for a time the two were happy. Anne had two children from a previous relationship and John seemed to be the ideal stepfather to her boy and girl. He worked on a construction site, earning a steady income to support his family. But sadly, things were not what they seemed. John had assaulted Anne a number of times. He lost his job and tensions between them hit breaking point. John lashed out one final time before their relationship dissolved and the couple split up. Shortly after the breakup, John's mother passed away. Struggling to come to terms with his mother's death, John turned to alcohol and his life continued on a downward spiral. He moved in with his brother, who had since relocated to the Ford estate. John tried his hand at window cleaning to make ends meet, but his drinking habit got the better of him. He earned the nickname John the Bag as he would often be seen sleeping rough in cemeteries and on park benches with a rucksack containing bottles of cheap cider. 
the press would later speak to John's neighbour Antoinette Steele, who said John was fine when he was younger. He loved to play darts in the local pub and worked really hard on the buildings, but it all changed once he left Anne. First thing in the morning when the shop opened, he and his brother would go down for a drink and he would be back there at tea time. Another neighbour, Leslie Carr, said, I felt very sorry for them. They used to get in such a state with the drink. They were always getting picked on by kids around here who would even rifle their pockets in the street. Locals thought John harmless and inoffensive, but in 2001 he was arrested for being drunk and disorderly and his DNA was entered into the National Police database. Over the next few years, the investigation into Wearside Jack went cold and police resources were diverted elsewhere. Believing that modern day testing may now be inaccurate due to the chemicals used on evidence in the 1970s, the case into Wearside Jack was shelved. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
A break in the case came when in 2005, the West Yorkshire Homicide and Major Inquiry team decided to go over the details of the case just once more, given the advances in DNA technology. While this sounded like a golden opportunity to find out who Wearside Jack really was, investigators were scuppered at the first hurdle as the whereabouts of the letters and tapes were unknown. The archives of the West Yorkshire Police Force were searched without much luck, and investigators approached the Forensic Science Services, located in Weatherby, who were thought to have the letters and tapes, although at first, this also turned up a blank. It wasn't until three sections of the gum seal from one of the letters were finally found, the police now had an important piece of the puzzle. The seal was analysed, as it was assumed to have been licked by the culprit, or at the very least, it could lead detectives to a person that might know who Wearside Jack was. Forensic experts only had one opportunity to extract a profile, as the process would destroy the seal. The results were processed through the United Kingdom National DNA Database, which holds details of criminals convicted since 2001. A match was found, with there being a one in a billion chance that it could be anyone else. The match was John Samuel Humble from Sunderland, and he was arrested in October 2005. Police arrived at Henry Humble's property at Flodden Road on the Ford estate where John had been staying after the breakup of his marriage. He would spend most days in a drunken stupor and predictably when police found him, he was inebriated. After being taken to Wakefield Police Station, he didn't fully understand the situation he found himself in. At first he refused to speak during the interview, only shaking or nodding his head to each question posed. Investigators believed that John wasn't speaking, worried that the recording of his voice would be compared to the original recording received back in 1979. The following day after a night's sleep, John admitted that he authored the letters and confirmed it was his voice on the tape. John told police he gathered the information from press clippings and books based on the original Ripper murders. This interview is being tape recorded and it may be given in evidence if this case goes to court. Could you give me, please, your full name and your date of birth? I can tell you that um, this is John Samuel Humble. I am telling you who he is because Mr Humble has indicated to me he is not going to say anything at this stage. Were you aware of the letters that were being sent, John, in relation to the Ripper inquiry? Shaking your head. Did you see the Yorkshire Ripper inquiry on television? Shaking your head. Have you sent these letters, John? Shaking your head. Tell me in detail, please. John, this is your opportunity to tell your version of events and your side of the story. What can you tell me about it, John? I did send it. You're tripping that from what do you say? I did. Send the letter. Tell me all about it, John. Later on, in June, I sent the tape. It's got my voice on. So I thought I was doing him a favour, letting the coppers look harder. And they did, they caught him. What, where did you get Jack from? Oh, I read a boot in the library. 
there are some significant similarities in the letters that you wrote. Did you use some of the phrases and some of the knowledge that you picked Probably up from the book? from the book. From the book? Yeah. <coughs> you mentioned briefly yesterday that you may have taken some um, <coughs> excerpts out of that book and transferred them onto the letters. I will have read it thoroughly, like. Right. Did you, ma just, did you mark did, in the book any... I just got fascinated by it, you know. Yeah. I panicked when the, the, the coppers were raking all over the castle down. I live on the other side of the river. Did they knock on your door, John? No, I didn't get anywhere near me. You were never seen throughout no. the inquiry when they spent all that time no. in Sunderland? Not once. How old were you? I couldn't believe it. Pardon? I couldn't believe it. Why couldn't you believe I was, it? I didn't, I didn't, because they were checking him. They checked the bloke next door, Ernie. What else did you put on the end of that tape? Oh, there was like a little tune. What tune was that? Uh, thank you for being a friend. As Peter Sutcliffe committed a murder in September 1979, it only added more credence to the authenticity of the letters. Some believe that Peter Sutcliffe might have read the letters and heard the tape, coinciding his next attack to divert police attention. Maybe true, maybe not, but either way the hoax had a devastating effect on the investigation. After being interviewed, John Humble appeared before Leeds Crown Court to hear the charges against him, and a trial date was set for February 20th the following year. In a hearing that lasted less than five minutes, John, who stood between two heavy-set security guards, confirmed his name, date of birth and home address. The clerk of the court read in the charges. She said, you sent a series of communications, namely three letters and an audio tape to West Yorkshire Police and the press, claiming to be the perpetrator of a series of murders that at the time were the subject of a police investigation. A plea was not entered and John would remain in custody. Reporting restrictions were put in place so John Humble couldn't be identified by the national press. Less than a week later, he appeared before Leeds Crown Court via a video link from Armley Jail. In the preliminary hearing, David Taylor, acting on behalf of the defence, put forward an application for bail, however this was rejected by the judge. At the start of the new year on January 9th, John appeared in Leeds Crown Court and initially pled not guilty to the charges of perverting the course of justice. David Taylor, John's barrister, stated to the court that he would be presenting evidence from handwriting and voice resonation experts to prove his client was not guilty. Mr Humble's case, as he has no recollection of writing the letters or sending the tape, the barrister said. Richard Hebbett, acting on behalf of the prosecution, explained that evidence to prove John's guilt would include blood, fingerprint and DNA analysis. A new trial date was set for March 20, 2006 and John would remain in police custody. During the morning of February 23, 2006, John Humble admitted that he wrote the letters and sent the tape to Detective George Oldfield, however denied the charges against him. Speaking at Leeds Crown Court before Judge James Stewart QC, David Taylor said, A defence statement has been drafted whereby the defence concedes that he wrote the letters and in fact made the tape. 
The issue now is not one of whether it was actually him, it's solely the question of intent. John's defence barrister explained that John had been driven to alcohol due to the guilt he felt about what he had done, but he was trying to help the police focus their inquiries. John Humble denied he intended to pervert the course of justice as he had made attempts to notify the police that the tape was a hoax during September 1979. The trial would still take place on March 20th and press restrictions were lifted, so John Samuel Humble was identified as Wearside Jack. On the day of the trial, John Samuel Humble pled guilty to four counts of perverting the course of justice. Paul Worsley QC, acting on behalf of the prosecution, told the court that John was fascinated with tales of Jack the Ripper and based his letters upon the killer's writing style. By issuing the letters, John threw the investigation off course and deliberately obstructed the police in carrying out their duty. Paul Worsley said, after the first two letters were sent, the hoaxer did not know whether the police were taking them seriously, but when it was revealed the police were taking them seriously, he could have stopped. He did not. He was to send another letter and then a tape. That made it clear he wanted to send the police off the trail of the true killer. He added, it was a haunting and sinister recording. The tape was not recorded in haste. It was recorded deliberately with no mistakes from a script which must have been carefully researched. It had no label and bore no fingerprints, and the hoaxer knew the police could not ignore it. Who else other than the Yorkshire Ripper himself could conceivably want to throw the police off the scent of the Ripper? It either came from the Yorkshire Ripper, or someone who had amassed an encyclopedic knowledge of the Ripper and his movements and attacks. Paul Worsley continued, the hoaxer must have scoured the press very carefully to pick up such fine detail which was likely to mislead the police into thinking the letter was genuine. All of the things in the letters and the tapes were in the public domain, the Crown say, but the hoaxer must have gone to the trouble of acquiring an encyclopedic knowledge of the case in order to appear convincing. John explained that he attempted to notify police that the letters and tape was a hoax. I phoned in to tell them it was a hoax, but they didn't take any notice, he said. In reference to Barbara Leach, another of Peter Sutcliffe's victims who was murdered at the start of September 1979, John said, I blame myself for it. That's why I phoned in. They took no notice, and another two got killed. Shortly after Barbara Leach was murdered, John Humble attempted to take his own life. On March 21, 2006, John Humble was sentenced to eight years in prison after admitting to four counts of perverting the course of justice. During mitigation, John's barrister, Simon Bornarton QC, addressed the court and said John didn't realise the extent to which his communication would shape the investigation. He said he did not for one moment think the police would ultimately react to the extent they did. It was not until he was to hear his voice being broadcast over the television that he became so aware. Simon Bonarton posed a question to the court. Who was to say the police would have captured Peter Sutcliffe sooner if that tape hadn't been sent to the police? The defence barrister asked for leniency, as John had struggled with alcohol dependency, and this may have clouded his judgement. Simon Bonarton said, 
He is 50 years old at the time of his arrest, and at the time of his arrest he was a hopeless alcoholic. He was so drunk as to be incoherent and police couldn't interview him for more than a day. The barrister added, Had it not been for these matters that brought John Humble before your lordship yesterday, he would have led a spectacularly inadequate life. During sentencing, Judge Norman Jones addressed John Humble. He said you arrogantly set out to send the investigation away from the path of the true killer. You did that with an indifference to the potentially fatal consequences which was breathtaking and this sets you in the most serious category of offending of this type. The Ripper attacked without mercy and police were baffled for five years and he remained undetected. I'm satisfied one of the factors that may well have contributed to his remaining at large for so long was you sending the letters and the tape. While it cannot be said that your actions caused or directly led to the murders of three women and the attacks on two other women who survived, they moved the focus of the police investigation to Sunderland. While it can neither be said with any certainty that the murderer might have been caught any earlier, we can be sure from statements made by Peter Sutcliffe on his arrest that the hoax letters and tape had given him confidence to continue on his course of actions. The least that could be said was these victims would have stood a better chance of not being attacked had these police resources been directed in West Yorkshire. You took on his persona. Your letters comprised a mixture of taunts and threats and were well researched. Then you sent a tape recording of you pretending to be the Ripper. It was cleverly constructed and your delivery was sinister. Police were persuaded that the hoaxer was the killer and you must have appreciated the way police were being led astray. At no time did you have the courage to come forward and confess. You are a man with a dislike of the police and it gave you pleasure to make fools of them. What is unforgivable is that you failed to put the record straight when you realised the damage you were doing. Had the tape not been sent, the deployment to Sunderland, whether wise or not, would simply not have occurred. Perverting the course of justice is a serious offence because the intention of the offender is to manipulate our justice system and produce injustice. In this case, the manner of your offending, if not unique, is almost so. You plan to manipulate the process of the investigation of one of the most horrific series of murders ever seen in this country. You walked and bent its path away from the true killer. For these reasons I have elected to impose the most severe sentence available to me given the charges brought. I sentence John Samuel Humble to eight years in prison for each of the four counts of perverting the course of justice. The sentences to run concurrently. So where are we now? In July 2006, John Humble was granted leave to appeal the length of his sentence. David Taylor, the defence counsel during the appeal, believed that the sentence was manifestly excessive and too severe. He thought his client was a different man from the one who committed the crimes 20 years ago, and more emphasis should have been put on his client's guilty plea. The appeal was rejected three months later in October. One of the three judges presiding on the appeal panel, Mr Justice Calvert-Smith, thought while the term was severe, it was not wrong in principle or excessive. He said the crime was uniquely serious and had possibly fatal consequences. 
David Taylor had told the judges that John Humble had been a chronic alcoholic for most of his adult life, drinking as soon as he woke up until the moment he passed out. He said that John had been a model prisoner since he had been in custody, and ironically, the fact he has been in custody probably saved his life. John Humble served half his sentence at a low-risk Category C prison in Yorkshire and was later released on licence moving back to Wearside. His family have received numerous death threats and John was assaulted after his release. John's sister Jean spoke to the Mirror newspaper and said he has moved on with his life. We all have, but nobody will forget what he did. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. To support They Walk Among Us and receive ad-free content and other extras, please head to patreon.com forward slash theywalkamonguss. You can follow us on Twitter at TWAU underscore podcast, or follow us on Instagram and Facebook under They Walk Among Us podcast. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.